Good morning, Boulder Church. Thank you so much, Mr. Ridge. Thank you, uh, students, for being here. Uh, we are already blessed in this service. Thank you so much. So the title of my sermon today is People, Place, or Thing. Something that was in the news not too long ago was the discussion amongst the royal family of Windsor about what titles should be, uh, should be given to the children of Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan. The reason this is even a discussion to debate is because about two years ago, Prince Harry and, Meg and Meghan left the palace of Windsor and came to America. So the question has been, if even Harry and Meghan should still have their titles, if they no longer live in a royal place and they no longer do the royal things. So here's my question to you all, or maybe it's a low key riddle for you. If you take a prince out of a palace, is he still a prince? If a prince doesn't live in a royal place or do the royal things, is he still royal? The answer, I think, is yes, because what makes a prince royal? It's not the place he lives in or the things he does. It's the family he belongs to. It's the people he's related to. He's a prince because at the end of the day, he is the son of the king. Could it be that the church may also have a lot less to do with a place we attend or a thing that we do and a whole lot more to do with the people in God's family? If you will turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 16, we're actually going to start with the verse 16. So Acts 16, 16 is where we're starting. And I'm going to start off reading here. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, okay, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So to give a little context, we need a, a little context here to see what has happened leading up until this point. You see, back in, this is Acts chapter 16, but back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had recently lived, died, resurrected, and just ascended back up into heaven. But right before he ascends back to heaven, 
He gives the disciples, them and the disciples for every generation to come, including this one. He gives the command of the Great Commission. He gives the command to all disciples to go be the church. Go be the church to the world. But there is something that they need to do before they go. He says, Jesus says first, they need to sit, stay, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it clear to all of his disciples that their mission is number one, to know him, be witnesses of him, and number two, to make him known wherever they go. But they would only be powerful and effective if they stayed and waited for the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question. Who here is a dog person? You can raise your hand. Oh, I don't see that many. How many of you are cat people? Let me see it. Maybe there's more cat people here. Hey, I love it. Blessings to you. So I have a question for you. If you have a dog or um, if you've ever trained a dog, what is one of the first things that you typically train a dog to do? Sit. Okay, I heard a bunch of you say sit. There's probably lots of things that you can teach a dog, but that's probably one of the very first things that you teach a dog is to sit. Now with the cats, you don't teach them anything because they do what they want. But the dogs, one of the first things is to teach them to sit, to stay. Now it's really interesting that Jesus used this very, uses this very simple command to all of his disciples. He makes it real simple. Hey, you need to sit, stay, stay, wait, wait for my spirit, for my Holy Spirit, and then you can go and fetch. Then you can go to the people. And that's exactly what happens. The disciples wait for the Holy Spirit, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But now, going back to this story, the disciples... Paul and Silas and a group of them who are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you notice where they're headed? They're headed to church. Just like all of you guys today headed to church. They're on their way, but on the way, they heal a slave girl who has been demon-possessed. However, when the owners of the slave girl find this out and they see that their method of making money has gone away, they are ticked. They attack Paul and Silas. They drag, to them, they drag them to the center court, to the magistrates, to the leaders. And they begin accusing Paul and Silas of turning the world upside down. Now, unfortunately, the surrounding crowd agrees and joins in and attacks Paul and Silas as well. And the magistrates, these leaders, they end up making the decision for Paul and Silas to be stripped, beaten, and put into prison. 
Now, if you go with me to verse 23 and 24, it says, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded the guard, commanded to guard them carefully. When he received the orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet with stocks. So a couple, uh, a couple of Sabbaths ago, I facilitated the spot, which is the uh, connect group for teens. And so really, we studied this together. So really, they, they co-crafted this sermon with me. And this is what they said. The, and I quote, this passage gave them pirates of the Caribbean prison vibes. So if that helps kind of paint a little picture for you, but the details in these verses really tells us a lot and paints a picture for us. It paints a picture for us that they are getting the worst treatment. There's three things that stand on. Number one, they got the worst punishment. You see, if they got Jewish punishment, they would have been limited to 39 stripes. But they got Roman punishment, which means there really is no limit. They could just go ham. But number two, they got the worst part of the prison. They got put in the inner cell. It's the hottest part of the prison. There's no AC in there. It's like doing hot yoga with jeans on. I overheard this group of ladies this week while I was working on the sermon. I overheard this group of ladies talking about how they would never do hot yoga again. They said, oh, it's so hot in the room. I felt like I was just trapped in this hot room. I tried to find any form of relief, so I laid myself on the floor, and then I found out even the floor was heated. Said, I could not find relief. Well, that's what this inner cell is like. That's where Paul and Silas are. And number three, they were put in the worst physical position. Putting their feet in the stocks was actually a form of torture. It was a guarantee that there would be no sleep that night. What this passage is trying to get across is a message is that there are big odds stacked against Paul and Silas. Their struggle was very real. The thing is that their struggle was very real, but so was their God. I heard a song this week that said, the only remedy for big odds is a big God. Maybe some of you are here this week and you're facing really big odds. But this passage is a reminder that you're facing these really big odds with a really big God. So yes, your struggle may be very real, but so is your God. In verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. See, you see, the jailer was used to hearing complaining, crying, cursing, but tonight, tonight, they all heard worship. Paul and Silas, remember, they were on their way to the house of prayer, but they got put into prison. So then they turned the prison into their house of prayer. They never actually made it to church. 
So they that prison became their church. And how is this possible? It's possible because it's the overflow of the Holy Spirit living in them. You see, they were simply witnesses of Jesus Christ. They had experienced Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses. So this is the natural overflow. You see, being a witness is someone who hears, sees, or experiences something. Being a witness is not something we do to somebody. It's something we are. Being a witness is not something we do for Jesus. It's simply testifying about what Jesus has done for us. So here, they are true witnesses of Jesus. And a witness just sometimes has got to worship. Whether they're on the highest of highs in the mountaintop, they got to worship. And when they are in the, the depths of the depths, they are facing hardship. Sometimes there's nothing else to do but worship. Jesus is all they have and Jesus is all they need. And verse 26, it says, suddenly, and here we saw that awesome skit played out for us. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. It says, at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. You see, it doesn't actually say that God was the one who caused the earthquake, but it has the timing and the characteristics of God written all over it. Because it says once the earthquake hit, everyone's chains were broken. Oh, this is so good. Everyone's chains were broken in their sphere of influence, not just Paul and Silas, but everyone in their sphere of influence. So check this out. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit lives in us, he not only has the power to break our chains, he has the power to break the chains of everyone around us. Now, the Holy Spirit, not only your chains, so everyone in your sphere of influence, who is that? Your family, your friends, your classmates, your neighbors, your communities, and even your baristas. Verse 27 and 28, the jailer woke up. So the jailer must have been put to sleep with all this worship. It says he woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew the sword and was about to take his life because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. You see, God just busted them out of prison. They could have said, deuces, peace out. They could have ran for their lives, but they didn't. They stayed. And the thing is, it says, notice it says, we all are here. Not just Paul and Silas, all the prisoners stayed. Why do you think they stayed? Because that night, they had experienced a night of worship. They had experienced a true church service in prison. They had experienced God's presence. 
And when you're in God's presence, you just don't want to leave. So all the prisoners stayed. You see, Paul and Silas could have taken this opportunity for revenge, but they're too in love with their redeemer to get revenge on the jailer. They stayed because they cared about the jailer's salvation. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it changes us. It changes our eyes. We begin to see the things that Jesus sees. It changes our ears. We begin to hear the things that Jesus hears. It changes our heart because our heart begins to beat in the same pattern that Jesus' heart beats. It is like the Grinch who stole Christmas and his little heart becomes three sizes. That, it, it, what happens? It grows three sizes that day. That's literally what happens when the Holy Spirit is living in us. We are changed. We actually care about others. If you go to verse 29 through 31, it says, The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The thing is that the prisoners and the jailer experienced Jesus that night. The jailer not only saw Jesus through their songs, through their words, he saw Jesus through the actions of Paul and Silas, through their love for him. Paul and Silas were evidence to the jailer that Jesus lives. Now check this out. Have you ever thought that you are evidence that Jesus lives? That people, when they look at you, they can tell that Jesus lives because he lives in you. I need you to do something. I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, I know that Jesus lives because he's alive in you. Amen. Now verse 32 through 33. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. The jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. The thing is, Paul and Silas were filled with the joy of the Lord. They're filled with the Holy Spirit because they're living a life in Christ. And now it says that the jailer is filled with joy because he's living a life in Christ. The jailer is now living his best life because he's living a life in Christ. The thing is, what could have been Paul and Silas's biggest prison became their greatest platform for the kingdom. Their lives were a testimony of Jesus despite their situation. 
And the jailer, check this out, the jailer and the prisoners may have never stepped foot into a church. But that night, in the prison cell, church came to them. Those who are around you may never, may also never step foot inside of a church. But they just might experience the love of Jesus by stepping into contact with you. When I was, uh, I lived with my sister for a little bit. I was doing a student teaching uh, for, a couple, for a couple months in Minnesota at Maplewood Academy. Um, it's in Hutchinson, Minnesota. And I, my sister and I, we had gotten the news from my mom that our dog had died. Our sweet little dog, Gus Gus. You can see how just cute he is by just his name. We were so sad, and you know what? We were like, let's just go drive to St. Cloud. Let's drive a ways away. Like, it's an hour away. We just decided, let's go to a caribou coffee. That's a very Minnesota thing, and there was none around. It's an hour drive, but for some reason, we're like, you know what? Let's just go there and read. Maybe we'll have a Bible study together. Maybe we'll just have a Jesus date. That's what we call just reading our Bibles and talking about Jesus together. So we get in the car, I bring my green Bible, and we go to Caribou Coffee up in St. Cloud. And we get in here, and I, and I sit down. And not too much longer after that, a, a woman comes, and she sits near us. And she kind of low-key tries to start a conversation she asked help with her computer, which I don't really know anything about technology and I don't try to. So I said, oh, that, you can ask my sister. I just brushed it off. Then a little bit later, she asked me what I'm reading. I give her a very short answer. Here's the thing. I was like doing ministry all week long and, and I'm just gonna be totally honest with you. At that time, I was like, I am off the clock, sis. But then she asked another question. She asked where I got my Bible. I mean, she kept like bringing herself into uh, my space of, with her conversation, but I kept brushing her off. I was just not in the mood. My dog had just passed away. And you know what? I'll be honest. We ended our time there. We packed up, we walked out, and my sister, we're in the parking lot. My sister says, Molly, she's so much, she is an angel. She really is. So much better than I. She goes, Molly, why don't you go back and pray with her? She, she says, don't you feel like there's something going on with her? She says, how about you go back and pray? I said, you know what? I felt like I should ask her to pray too, but I wasn't. I wasn't feeling it, so I said, okay, okay, but you asked me to, so I'll go back in. So I walk back in, I go to her, this woman, and I said, hey, ma'am, can I pray with you? And immediately, she begins to weep. And then after, 
she stops crying a little bit, immediately she begins praising God. And she says, Jesus is real. Jesus loves me. She's, she's literally praising and crying, and she keeps saying this over and over again. She says, Jesus loves me. Jesus is real. And she says, please sit down so I can tell you this story. So I sat down, and she said, this has been the worst week of my life. On Monday, I got fired. I lost my job that I've worked so hard for. And then on Tuesday, my husband was so upset with me, he asked for a divorce. Now, Wednesday, yesterday, I decided I was going to take my life. But then I said one prayer to God, and I said, if you are really real and you really love me, you haven't forsaken me, you haven't left me, Tomorrow, could you send somebody to pray with me? Anybody. So she says, you guys came in here. I saw you with your Bible, and I thought, Jesus, send me somebody. <laughs> and, but then you left. <laughs> and she says, but then you came back. And she says, and then... You, pr you asked to pray with me. Jesus lives. He's real and he loves me. Jesus commands his disciples, then and now, of every generation, number one, to know him, and number two, to make him known. But the cool thing is, Jesus is so good, he does all the work. He does all the work in showing up for us, and we're just simply a witness of Jesus. And number two, he gives us the helper. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is not limited to a certain position, a certain race, a certain gender, a certain age. The Holy Spirit is freely given to all those who want to receive it. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we organically uplift Jesus, shine for Jesus, show love, show the love of Jesus wherever we go. Whether it be in Boulder or Erie or Tacono or Longmont or Mead or Johnstown or Loveland or Timbuktu. Whether we attend Vista Ridge or a CU or a charter school or a public school or a home school, whether we are in a palace or a prison or a pit, behind a pulpit, or stranded on an island of Patmos, we are the church because we are children of the king. So what if the Boulder Adventist Church was the place where people stopped just going to church and start being the church. That this was like the last stop. They come here and they said, man, this place, it makes me want to be the church. So my question and my appeal for us this morning is, how is God calling you to be the church?
how is God calling you to be the church to your family? Let's start there. You know that a church service is about one or two hours for your family, but you have them the other 160 hours of the week. How is God calling you to be the church to your family? How is God calling you to be the church to your church family? How is God calling you to be the church to your communities? Like your coworkers that you spend eight hours a day with, the friends that you're in class all week long with, the next door neighbors that you walk past every evening, or the baristas you drive up to every morning. And maybe you're thinking, maybe there's some here this morning that are thinking, you're not able to be the church because of where you're at in life, because of whatever situation you're going through. But just remember, Joseph was thrown into a pit and he ended up saving all of Egypt from a famine. John was exiled to the island of Patmos and he wrote the book of Revelation. Paul and Silas were thrown into prison and they baptized the jailer and his whole entire family. What the enemy intends for evil, God will use for good. So your pit or your Patmos or your prison may actually just be your greatest platform for the kingdom yet. So my appeal and my prayer is this, that the Holy Spirit lives in us and through us and as a result, we can be the church to our families, to our church, and to our communities. And that all who meet us will meet Jesus. The church is not just a place we attend or a thing that we do. It's the people in God's family. It's me and it's you.